Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So that means as soon as we're in trouble, we should turn on the tap of thanksgiving to God. And why? Because also in that Psalm, Psalm 50, Psalm 50 verse 23, 50, 23, it says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him will I show the salvation of God. Okay, so God is looking for the person who praises him and is thankful to him so he can show the salvation to that person. What is thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is the draino that unstops our life of woes. (laughs) Thankfulness is what we see in this steward. He's an example to us of how we should come to God and rejoice and be thankful. He's the way we should be. So the thankfulness that we see in this Egyptian steward is the example for us to follow as we look for opportunities to thank God. Oh, money? No, treasure. As we have the spirit of gratitude, that's how we should be. Now, in this Egyptian spirit, we also see he not only speaks for God, but he has works he has works to back him up. He's working for God. He's called, he's what the Bible calls being a doer of the word, as it says in James 1.23. James 1.23 says, if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, in a mirror. The Lord Jesus said it in uh, Matthew 7.24, Matthew 7.24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and do with them. I will liken him unto a man, a wise man, which built his house on a rock. Then he went on to say, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and do with them not. It's like a foolish man that built his house on the sand. So now the brothers, they've come into the house, and we see what they do in verse 25. They made ready the present against Joseph, came at noon, for they heard that they should be bred there. So they're told, the governor's coming back at noon, and so they say, okay, which one of you has the saddlebags, you know? <laughs> and they break out this present, they get it all ready, they kind of, okay, you know how we're going to do this presentation of the gift here, right? Of the gifts, and they all got it all, they, they, they got it all. So they've unpacked all the best gifts from the land of Canaan there, and they probably got them all spread out and rehearsed to how they're going to give this to the, to the governor when he comes back at lunch, And he comes home. Finally, he comes home. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. So the first thing they do when Joseph gets back is that they present the gifts and they they brought to him. They didn't just set them on a table and say, oh, you know what? All these things are for you. They didn't do that. What they did is that they put the gifts in their hands 
So the, and it, it says they give it to him. He should look at the gift, should look at their hand, and they associate the gift with themselves. They wanted Joseph to see their presents were coming from their hand so he wouldn't be angry with them. Then they bowed. They bowed before Joseph. It was not just a curtsy bow. This was really a bow because as it says in verse 26, they bowed themselves to him to the earth. They put their bodies down on the ground. And so at this point, Joseph is seeing this. He's seeing his brothers bow before him and which they didn't do just once, but you see in verse 28, they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. So Joseph sees this. He sees this, and he sees, when he sees this, he says, this is the fulfillment of the dream that God gave to me 20 years ago, like by way of a prophecy. And we can imagine how Joseph, he must have thought back, wow, 20 years, that was a long time. What happened during those 20 years. He must have been marveling about that. He must have said, 20 years ago, God gave me a dream that my brothers would bow down to me, and they mocked me, and the whole family said I was foolish, I was arrogant to have a dream like that. And now here we are, 20 years later. I see this dream prophecy. It's fulfilled. And he must have thought, what happened during those 20 years? I mean, he had a dream about his brothers bowing down to him, and yet He had nearly been killed by his brothers as they threw him into a waterless pit in the hot desert. He had been sold as a slave to the Midianites. He'd been promoted to chief servant in Potiphar's house. He'd been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He'd been a prisoner in an underground prison. He'd been exalted to the highest position in Egypt. He gathered corn for seven years of abundance. And now he's feeding Egypt during the seven years of famine. And now his brothers are bowing down before him, and he's thinking to himself, you know, that was a lot of ands in between that dream and this bowing down here. You know, he's thinking that. And he's thinking, you know, you know, that was a lot of dramatic events in between the dream of the brothers bowing down to me and this actual event that I'm witnessing right now. So as Joseph looks back over his life, from the time that he had the dream and the moment now when his brothers are bowing down before him, he's thinking to himself, the only event that God told would happen in my life is this event right here of the brothers bowing down to me. I think some of those other events that happened to me were kind of important, you know, like the pit part, like the slave part, like the prison part. I think those parts were kind of important, but I didn't see any of those parts in my dreams. God didn't tell me about any of those parts that would happen to me. God just told me about this bowing part. Now, why do you think that God did not tell Joseph about any of those other major events in Joseph's life in a dream back then when he was 17? Why do you think? Okay, yeah. I mean, if Joseph had seen the pit part, (laughs) and the prison part of that dreams there, he would be pretty afraid. He would be pretty discouraged. He'd be discouraged. And remember that there is a hallmark characteristic in Joseph's life, and that's in Genesis 39.2. It's repeated in another place. Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So it wasn't like the Lord said to Joseph, be a 17-year-old, okay, I gave you the dream now. Good luck. You cast him off there. You know? <laughs> Hope to see you on the other side. I'll be waiting over there for you. 
But no, he was with him. That means God was saying to Joseph, look, I'm not going to show you the pit, and I'm not going to show you the prison part of your life, because I don't want to discourage you, but you're going to find out how I'm with you right on the spot, because I'm going to encourage you, see, during all those times. And if God had showed to Joseph the prime minister part of his life, that might have given Joseph a swelled head, and God didn't want Joseph to have a swelled head, so he keeps that part out of the dream. And again, Genesis 39, 2, the Lord was with Joseph. He says, I'll be with you. He said, God's thinking, I'm going to be with Joseph when he gets to that prime minister part. So God was with Joseph when he was promoted to prime minister, and God prepared Joseph to become prime minister by all those other things that happened, but and that kept Joseph from having a swelled head. So the dream of Joseph's brothers bowing down to him, that he's seeing that was a prophecy, that he's seeing fulfilled in front of him now, that showed him about his future, and that was the only part in Joseph's life that was important for him to see that his brothers were going to bow down to him because that encouraged Joseph with hope. That gave him hope, and that was what he was going to need as he goes into all those parts that we talked about, hope. And that's the reason why God showed him only this part of his brothers bowing down to him, the dream prophecy that Joseph had of his brothers bowing down to him was like a light, was like a light for Joseph that carried him through many dark tunnels in his life, many dark periods in his life. And that's the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy is a light that carries through dark places, as it says in 2 Peter 119. 2 Peter 119. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Wherefore, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Prophecy is a light that shines in a dark place, and we do well to take heed to it. And that's what Joseph's dream, his dream prophecy was for him. It was a light that shined in the dark places of a pit, in the dark places of a subterranean prison that Joseph took heed to, and that kept him going on till the day when the dawn came, when he sees his brothers bowing down to him. That's the picture we have of Joseph taking heed to the prophecy as a light in dark places in his life. And this is all described in Psalm 105, 19. Psalm 105, 19 talks about Joseph and says, until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Until the time came when his brothers bowed down to him, that dream prophecy was the word of the Lord, and it was a light to him. So it shows us what we are to do with prophecy that we have in Scripture. Because to view it, we're to view it as a light that shines in the dark places of our lives, just like Joseph did. Now let me ask you a question. From the dream that Joseph had about his brothers going down to him, if you were Joseph and you had that dream seeing your brothers bow down to him, is there any way in the world that you could have from that dream understood that there's going to be in my life a waterless pit that I'll be thrown into, a group of Midianites that I'll be sold to as a slave, a house of Potiphar that I would supervise, a wife of Potiphar who would falsely accuse me, a subterranean horrible prison that I'll be thrown into, a pair of prisoners who have dreams that only I can interpret, 
a pharaoh who has a dream that only I can interpret, and a prime minister position that I'm going to fill. <laughs> Is there any way he would have gotten that from just the part about his brothers bowing down to him? No, there's no way. There's no way that you could have gotten that. So from the prophecy given to Joseph about his brothers bowing down to him, there's no way you could have known what's going to happen to him in his life. And yet, this is what's done with prophecies today that we have in the Bible about the future. It's so common for people to take the prophecies about the future and somehow piece together into one, two, three series of events. That's it. That's going to happen. It was not God's purpose with the dream, the, the dream prophecy that he gave to Joseph for him to get a detailed timeline of everything that was going to happen in his life. And it's not God's purpose with biblical prophecies to give us a detailed timeline of all that's going to happen in the future. All that was told to Joseph in his dream was to be a light for Joseph to carry him in the dark places. And all that's told to us in biblical prophecy is a light to carry us in dark places. That's why I run away when people ask me, you know, well, what's going to happen next? I run away from all those conjectures about the prophetic sequence of coming events. Now, Joseph begins to speak with them in verse 27. He asked them of their welfare, said, is your father well, the old man of whom he spake? You spake, is he yet alive? So he looks at his brothers, and he sees really two groups within his brothers. The first group he sees are the ten brothers who are the sons of his father. They are the sons of his father. But then there's a second group. It's really only one person, but it's still a group. It's a second group of one, and that's described in verse 29 when it says, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. So that group is his mother's son, the son of his mother. Now the first group we want to talk about now, who are the sons of his father, and he asked them about their father. They are the sons of his father. He asked them about the father, is he alive and well? And the 10 brothers, who are the representatives of his father, now they speak, and they speak for their father, and they say, they answer in verse 28, thy servant our father is in good health, he's yet alive, and they bowed their heads and made obeisance. So speaking for their father, representing their father, they call their father thy servant, the servant of Joseph. And acting for their father, they bow their heads to the ground. So the brothers said that, the brothers did that, probably from the direction of their father. He probably told them, this is the way you talk. And with those words and that act of bowing, Joseph sees the fulfillment of his dream where his father bowed down to him as the son in his dream, the S-U-N, son in his dream. Now we read what he did next. In verse 29, he lifted up his eyes, saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, said, is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. I sort of stumbled a little bit there because, you know, Joseph has learned that his father is alive and well, and now he moves on. And previous to this, Joseph had taken a quick glance over the group there. He saw Benjamin. Maybe he really didn't take a close look at Benjamin. And now he does take the close look at Benjamin. He sees his mother's son. He sees his mother's son. And he keeps up the disguise, and he asks his brother, is this your younger brother? He knows that is. But he says, is this your younger brother? Of course he knows that. But the reason I kind of stumbled is because he asked a question and nobody answers him. You know, he, he doesn't even wait for an answer. And he speaks right to Benjamin. So he's in danger of blowing his cover again. 
And Joseph immediately breaks into a prayer for Benjamin as he calls on God to be gracious to him. What a wonderful prayer that is. That's a great prayer. Grace of God. He says, grace, I don't want you to get what you deserve. That's grace. Mercy, I don't don't want you to get what you do deserve. Sorry, grace, I want you to get what you don't deserve. Mercy, I want you to get what you don't deserve. Anyway, something like that. No, it's not getting what you do. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So forget everything else I just said anyway. So Joseph now, he singles out, and he blesses Benjamin with this special blessing. Now, can you picture that? I mean, there are all the brothers, and this special blessing is given to one brother. Can you imagine the other brothers at that moment? They're looking at each other, and they're saying, what's up with this? You know what I mean? What's up with Benjamin getting the special blessing? Is that why the governor insisted on Benjamin coming down here so he could shower this blessing and this privilege on Benjamin? And in the same way, can't you picture Benjamin looking back to his brothers and saying, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, this history is so incredible. I mean, you couldn't imagine all this stuff was happening. It'd be a great movie. be a great book. (laughs) Oh, it is a book. (laughs) Okay, now all this is just way over the top for Joseph. It's too much. He can't keep contained. He can't hold it together. In verse 30, Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. So he falls apart. He loses it, and he's overcome with emotion. This is the second time this has happened to Joseph. Remember the first time is when he overheard the conversation of his brothers of what they did to him in Genesis 42.22, 42.22, when it said that, uh, Reuben stands, didn't I tell you, don't sin against the child and you wouldn't listen to me? Now look, his blood is required. And then that's when he lost it also and, and started to cry. So as the tears are welling up in Joseph's eyes right now, he quickly looks for a place where he can be alone and he runs to his bedroom. as the best place. He can shut the door. He can cry his heart out, which he does. And then After that, we read in verse 31, he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, set on bread. Now, Joseph has had his good cry. He's washed his eyes. He's washed his face. And he returns to the brother and he keeps himself under control to not cry again. And then he calls for the bread, you know, set on bread. I don't know how they did it, but anyway. And when you see this picture, now you're really seeing a picture here from the part where it says set on bread and Joseph's there. I mean, there's the family. There's the brothers. There's Joseph who's sitting in front of them. He calls for sitting on bread. When you see this, now you're beginning to realize this is a private family matter. We are privileged to be able to sort of look in the window of what's going on in there. But this is very private. This is very private. It's between Joseph and his brothers. It's very, very private. This is prophecy of what Zechariah talked about, really a very private matter between the Lord Jesus Christ and his family when he's going to make himself known to the Jewish people someday, his family. And they're going to ask him, they're going to say to him, what's that piercing of your side? What are those nail prints in your hands? And he's going to say, these I received in the house of my friends. Very private. Then they'll recognize him, they'll weep as the one they'll realize they're provided for their salvation, the one they killed. And then this is all going to take place when he comes back. And this is revealed to us. Now, Likewise, the brothers of Joseph here are the ones who delivered him into slavery. They sold him. They got rid of him. 
But now he's going to make him, he's beginning to make himself known to his brethren. Someday, this is the Lord Jesus is going to do this. And when we see this close family affair, this is very private. It's between Joseph and his brothers, and the process is reconciliation. It's a picture of the close family affair between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jewish people. That's why it's so important to beware of anti-Semitism, because no matter how blind the nation of Israel is and what they do today, and regardless of the fact that they're not all nice people to Christians, it's still true. They're the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a day when he's going to make himself known to him. It's going to be a family affair. And it's best to let his family alone and let the Lord Jesus Christ accomplish his reconciliation with his own family. No real Christian can engage in anti-Semitism. Now, we read about something that the brothers saw here. They found very, very strange in verse 32. And they set on for him by them, himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which should eat with them. And then it says, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews. That's an abomination. There's three areas here. The brothers are eating in one area. Joseph is eating alone. And then the Egyptians are there. Joseph did not eat with the Egyptians. Why? <laughs> because the statement says that it's an abomination for an Egyptian to eat with a Hebrew. And the Egyptians know that he's a Hebrew. So he's got to sit there alone. But he's perched right in front of them. And they, in verse 33, they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his birthright. And the men marveled one at another. So he arranges the table where they're sitting just the way he remembers they sat in his father's house when they were all together, when they were eating together. He's got them all arranged just like they were. And, you know, the youngest to the oldest. And they're marveling. The brothers are marveling and they're thinking, he really does have some supernatural power to know this. And then he distributes the food. In verse 34, he took and sent messes unto them from before them, but Benjamin's mess was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So this isn't just a normal meal for the brothers. This is the best meal they've had in years. They've been starving and they're really enjoying it. And he can't help but show his affection for Benjamin. So he gives him the youngest, the littlest guy, gets five times more than any of them. And again, you can imagine the brothers, you know, looking at Benjamin with that why you look, you know. And you can imagine Benjamin looking back with them and giving them, I don't know, look, you know. Well, Simeon's back. The food is great. The drink is great. The governor is happy with Benjamin. They're all really happy. And this chapter ends with three really great words. Mary with him. Happy with him. Mary with him. They were merry with him. The happy with him. All the brothers were happy with Joseph. Now, we can't read those words, happy with him, without thinking and hoping for the coming day when the Jewish people will be happy with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we, we finish up this chapter with that vision in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how this speaks so much of your family affair with the Jewish people and how you will bring about reconciliation. And one day, they will be happy with you, Lord Jesus. And we're looking forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.com 
www.friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Join Tom Cantor, Ray Comfort, Dr. Michael Brown at the Israel Restoration Ministries Jewish Evangelism and Training Conference happening in San Diego on Friday evening, February 9th and Saturday morning, February 10th at the Creation Museum in Santee, California. Learn from great Bible teachers like radio host Tom Cantor from Friendship with God, as well as world-renowned Jewish evangelist Ray Comfort, radio host Dr. Michael Brown, director of Jews for Jesus Israel Dan Sered, Friends of Israel field director Steve Herzig, Pastor Leo Giovanetti, and many others. Cost for this two-day conference is only $25, which covers all speakers, food, and materials. So register today to hear Tom Cantor, Ray Comfort, Dr. Michael Brown, Jews for Jesus, and Friends of Israel on how we can reach the lost people of America and Israel on February 9th and 10th. Call us at 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or sign up at reachisrael.com, reachisrael.com.